The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 227. One day, I shall come back. That's it. I've been renewed. As when a Time Lord's body wears out, he regenerates. I'm a time lord. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Braveheart team. Change, my dear. And it seems on a moment too soon. Unlimited vice pudding. Position universe. Wearing a bit thin. Fantastic. Hello, I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Ta-da! She'll be fine. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the eighth Doctor Big Finish production, The Stones of Venice. Joining me today on the panel are Father Cory Stika. Hi, Father Cory. How's it going? Very well, thanks. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, remember to follow The Secrets of Doctor Who on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, iHeartRadio your favorite podcast app, or on the SQPN YouTube channel, where you should also make sure to hit the bell to get notifications. Don't miss an episode. Uh, and today we're talking about this episode, which is The Stones of Venice. As I said, this is a big Finnish audio production. This is a, an audio play featuring the Eighth Doctor, Paul McGann, and his companion, Charlie, played by India Fisher. So here's the recap. I'm gonna, I, I, I just wrote this up, so let's see how I, how I do. The Doctor and Charlie want to take a break from danger, so they're going to travel to 16th century Venice for a vacation, but end up in 23rd century Venice on the day before it's due to sink beneath the waters of the lagoon. The city's been under a curse by the late Duchess Estella, who apparently killed herself exactly 100 years previously, but cursed it so that the city and the Duke would survive for exactly 100 years. Then the Duchess was mad at the Duke because he gambled her away in a card game, which is interesting. Uh, now, the city is only left with three What is groups. she, the Millennium Falcon? <laughs> that's what I was yeah, thinking. No <laughs> that's exactly what I was thinking. The city is only left with three groups. The Duke and his decadent followers, the, 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 uh, the upper class or something, who are partying at the end of their world. A cult of Estella who believes that if they can find a portrait of her, they can bring her back and save the city. And the underclass of gondoliers who have somehow adapted a mutation to become amphibian and thus expect to survive the deluge and inherit the city. Charlie gets kidnapped by the gondoliers, who drug her to, to, and make her pretend to be Estella, thus distracting the Duke from finding a solution to the destruction, not realizing the Duke doesn't care and he's not trying to prevent the destruction. The Doctor ends up with the Duke's art curator, named Churchwell, and after promising to rescue the art collection with the TARDIS, uh, which contains some art that the Doctor deems to be of alien origin, uh, the art collection, not the TARDIS. Yes, right. yes, sorry. <laughs> they are kidnapped by some cultists, and the Doctor also finds that the cultists are in possession of Estella's tomb or coffin. I'm, I wasn't quite sure whether it was... whether I think it's like a sarcophagus sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, old Mrs. Lavish is running around Venice, contemptuous of them all, uh, and she eventually finds herself uh, running the Duke's uh, ball that... The, all the decadent people are having a party at after the cultists convince the Duke to come with them 
because they say they can restore his long-lost wife back to life. In the end, the doctor reveals Mrs. Lavish is actually Estella, who happens to be aliened, and her alien tech is what is causing the curse and the destruction of the city, and has also given her and the Duke their long life, and so has to convince them both to sacrifice themselves to save the city and to realize that they still love each other and, and thus end things on a sort of strange uh, Shakespearean note, <laughs> shall we say. That about do it, I think? It's, yeah, gold star. <laughs> all right, all right. So, <laughs> a couple things I want to note about this uh, up, up front. Mark Gatiss, we, we all know from uh, vi- writing several episodes of Doctor Who, the TV, and acting in that and in Sherlock and other things. He plays Vincenzo, the head of the of the cult. Michael Sheard, who was Admiral Ozzel in Star Wars, and who we saw before in the fourth Doctor story, Pyramid of Mars, he's Duke Orsino. Well, not not ju- not just fourth Doctor story, also the seventh Doctor. He was the headmaster at the school. I mean, he right. pops up all over the place throughout the history of Doctor Who. Classic. Yes, who. and and this was his last Doctor Who before he died in two thousand five. So, uh, so good to see him. Uh, some of the names from the play come uh, have some literary allusions. Uh, Duke Orsino is from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. Mrs. Lavish is a name that is found in uh, Ian Forster's book A Room with a View. And uh, and the final sort of background note. This was the first Eighth Doctor audio story to be recorded, although it's the which third mean, w- in released. Which means that it's Paul McGann's first time playing the Doctor after the TV movie. Right? Yes, exactly. And India Fisher's first time out as Charlie Ford. Uh, so. And I kind of wonder about the the timing of the writing of this, You know, whether they had the other three scripts in production. Because at one point in in the towards the end, the doctor refers to Charlie as his best friend, and yeah. I'm going, if this is their third outing together, that's a little quick for best friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So, well, fair, so I think know- I, I think it may be the writing showing through mm-hmm. that the author of this episode didn't know that oh, this is only their third time. Right. Well, and 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 to be fair, the. There have been other adventures that we, at this point, haven't heard about yet because we don't hear about them having to rush into the TARDIS being shot at, except at the beginning of this episode. Right. So It's another one of those, like the Doctor, sto- Doctor stories generally start usually one of two ways. Either it's a fresh adventure, or actually maybe three ways, or, and so we just start in the, in the new adventure, or they're coming off of the previous story we heard, or mm-hmm. they're coming off of a previous adventure that we don't know anything about and that, that's i think that's we, like you said father Gray, that's where we're starting here so they have some adventure that we don't know about and i think that's evidence of yeah the, the writing showing through where the guy didn't quite know what was what had happened before yeah uh, we also should compare this to the 11th doctor matt smith episode the vampires of venice yes and it appears you cannot go to venice without encountering fish people it's well, like yeah. a law of the universe. <laughs> if you if you go to Venice, you're going to encounter people who are adapted to life underwater. It, it's just going to happen. You're not only that, you're going to encounter alien queens who want to sink the city. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wonder how much so uh, obviously the 11th Doctor story uh is post this story. I wonder how much that Vampires of Venice was inspired by this story. It's quite possible. Uh, Stephen Moffat, I'm very sure, was aware of this story because he was part of the effort to keep Doctor Who 
going in some form between the cancellation of Classic Who and the birth of New Who, which is when this story was done. Mm-hmm. So he was one of the people, he was one of the behind the scenes people in this period. I'm sure he would have been aware of this story. Yeah. I should mention this story came out in March 2001, which is four years before New Who uh, you know, made its debut. So, yeah. So the, about this story itself, it supposedly takes place in the 23rd century. But there's mm-hmm. not much about this that makes it feel like a future Venice. There's no sense of modern right. technology in this at all. Well, I think that's by design, and that's true of a lot of Big Finish stuff, because unless there's not much of a way to communicate we're in a futuristic environment unless you're constantly talking about what you're seeing, because if we're in, if we're watching television, we can just see by the set design and the costumes and the the props that people are holding that this is futuristic or it's an advanced tech alien world or something. But you don't want to do too much. That's a very interesting gun with with a laser sight you're holding there. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't come across as well in dialogue. And so we're left in a lot of big finish to just infer. I mean, we're told the cultural setting, but then they, unless it has sonic implications, meaning sonic in the literal sense of the term, not the I'm off on a romp sense. Yeah. They don't really talk about it that much. Well, one of the well, even then, like I was left thinking, there is like no mention of vehicles or you know computers. There's no like well, not even twentieth century gondolas. tech, right? Well, yeah, but 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 think about how relevant those are to the plot. Nobody really needs to interact with a computer in this. I mean, you could, if you wanted, sneak in a like a computerized access panel to a door but that would be but those also in the future may operate so seamlessly that people don't need to talk about them and then in terms of in terms of vehicles well we do have gondolas and they Mm -hmm. have gondoliers and that is anachronistic but so are the horses and carriages in central park in new york city Mm -hmm. they're deliberately part of the local color because of the tradition I was going to say, I mean, the, obviously the gondoliers are, are anachronistic today in Venice. Sure. They're, they're not, they're yeah. not driving, you know, gas powered or electric powered boats through the canals. They're still doing it Although, the old fashioned way. There are still gas powered boats in Venice today. Yes. Like that, and that's, yeah. uh, that's the other thing too, is it does mention the barge of the Duke, but we don't know anything about it if it's, if yeah. it's, you know, some kind of propel, propelled machine or something like yeah. that. We don't know that either. And this isn't just a like a oh I found a little detail thing like that is it, for me it was a plot problem because the mm. the whole the plot revolves around they're stuck in this city the, you, you, no one can get out anymore all the last boats have departed and now everyone who's left is doomed to die I'm like helicopters <laughs> oh I took that as a this de- this has been deemed a hazard zone and if you're if you're choosing to stay there we're not coming back for you at this point. It's like when Mount St. Helens blew up, there were people who said, I'm staying in my mountain cabin here. And mm-hmm. at some point, it's like, okay, we're not sending a helicopter in back after you. Yeah. yeah. I think the big thing about it is, is it kind of contributed, even though it's set in the 23rd century, it sort of has a sort of semi-magical feel to it, a fairy tale yeah. sort of feel mm-hmm. to the story. Yeah. I think that might have been the intent. And I wonder, too, if there, they purposely did not put any kind of hint of technology in there to kind of show like so venice had become kind of this 
historical place that there really wasn't a technology. I mean, this is this is just kind of headcanon. again, maybe headcanon or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. but I mean, it's just it's that kind of idea of the city itself. The historical center of the city was left pretty retro on purpose. Mm. You know, yeah. Because again, it's the same thing of the gondoliers. You know, there's absolutely sure. no reason at all to go to Venice and ride a gondola. Except that's just what you do when you go to Venice. Well, you go to sure. Venice and ride a gondola. I get like that. you said, yeah. they've got they've got motorboats. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think also this syncs up with something that's really more broadly part of Doctor Who and a lot of science fiction. There's a chance. Now we don't know what's going to happen in the future with technology. We can assume you know, given that we don't have a major planetary disaster. Mm-hmm like a plague or an <laughs> asteroid hitting yeah. that technology will continue to advance, but we don't know how much it will advance and how much life will change. Mm-hmm. Now, given what's happened so far with technology, our lives have been enhanced, but we're basically still kind of living the way humans always have. I mean, we have mm-hmm. shelters, they're a little bit different, but we've been living kind of the same way since the since the since the stone age. Yeah. You know, we we we've had houses that long. We've been living in one place. We're not nomads, we're not hunter-gatherers. We have jobs, you know, all of those things that fell out of the agricultural re- revolution are still with us. And there's a possibility that transhumanism is going to happen and we're going to get robust AI and that'll radically transform human existence in ways that are unimaginable to us. But precisely because they're unimaginable, they don't show up in science fiction very much mm-hmm. because it's very hard to do good storytelling in a, in a setting like that. And so the assumption is people are going to still be kind of living the way they are now, but with some extra technological abilities and comforts. And that's Doctor Who, that's Star Wars, that's Star Trek. Mm -hmm. That's also Big Finish Doctor Who. So it's assumed that things are pretty much the same and they don't really go into the technology unless it's relevant to the plot. You can just kind of assume that there is extra tech that we're just not hearing about in these settings because it's not plot relevant. Of course, that doesn't get them out of, oh, no, it's the 22nd century and we don't have a cure for for smallpox or whatever it may yeah, be. It's right. like, actually, we got the smallpox cure in the 20th century, so you should have that. Right. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's legitimate to make criticisms like that. Yeah. I just, uh, yeah. I just felt that the, the, the setting, I like the setting, the Venice setting, and Venice is always a fun place to set a story, you know, mm-hmm. especially this sort of uh mystery mysterious story uh but yeah i uh i just i thought it was kind of odd that it just didn't feel futuristic even though they say like they didn't it didn't this didn't need to be 23rd century necessarily it could have been any century uh, but uh, it's well that was anyone where anyone in the future where i mean it could be later 21st century if venice is going to fall into the sea then it just can't be in the past well right yeah although they they did that with vampires of venice where it was going to sink into the sea all along, we knew it was it wouldn't because that's not the history of it. But uh, but in this case, the doctor goes in yeah. saying, "This is the day that we're yeah that it's about to fall into the sea." Right. That's true. That's true. That's true. Uh, he did change. Not a fixed point. <laughs> yep. Well, I was going to say um, <laughs> yeah. it. It. So what happens with this? The doctor knew that Venice was going to fall into the sea, and then it doesn't. 
Yeah. 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 A- apparently he's changed. Uh, he has changed time, right? He's meddled in time and changed the, the, the timeline. Hopefully uh, not another trial for him <laughs> from the mm-hmm. Time Lord. <laughs> so uh, Char- I-, I thought it was interesting that, that uh, Charlie's reaction to going to Venice was, oh, Venice is so gloomy. I don't, I don't uh, why, why do you want to go there? I thought, is Venice gloomy? Is, that, is it a gloomy place? I thought that was odd. I've never been, but I don't <laughs> yeah. get the impression that it is. I get the impression it's the exact opposite. Yeah. Uh, Charlie, as a... Um, Someone from the his upper class in the early 20th century, I, I like her interesting perspective on things, which is different from most other companions that I've seen in, in who uh, there's been a few who have all like Victoria, I guess, is also mm-hmm. somewhat upper class and from an earlier time, although she's 19th century. But I like Charlie's perspective. Yeah, Charlie also is more sophisticated than uh, than Victoria. Victoria had the ability to come out of her her shell and do things when especially in her first adventure uh, Evil of the Daleks mm-hmm. she she really stepped up to the plate but then she kind of retreats and becomes a little bit more of a damsel in distress Charlie is not a damsel in distress Charlie no. is an adventurous in the good yeah. sense of the term she has just been champing at the bit to get away from her upper class lifestyle and experience the world Although they, they do kind of show her that kind of that push-pull of, I don't know how far I really want to go, how far I want to push this, you know, and I, I think that's, yeah. that's kind of a good thing for her characters. She wants to get out there. She wants to explore, you know, and they even comment, the doctor says, well, I thought you said you're, you know, you, you had all these adventures. Like, no, I wanted to have all these adventures. I hadn't done it yet. But, <laughs> yes. but at the same time, she's like, how far do I really want to push that? I still want that, that safety. Yeah. There's a bit of critique of the doctor of his... Uh, recklessness that she makes. I mm-hmm. think. I also like Charlie's uh, how how Charlie fits in with different social classes, despite her posh upbringing. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we first meet her, she's passing as a cabin boy on right. an airship, which is working class. And she, in this episode, when she meets the gondolier, and the gondolier tells her uh, Pietro, the gondolier. Mm-hmm. Pietro tells her initially, it's like, well, I'm not meant to be really having conversations with, uh, with the customers. And she's like, well, I'm no snob. You know, tell me <laughs> yeah. about this issue. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was, uh, it was interesting. Yeah, she was, she's like, Ooh, who's this guy? Even though he has webbed feet or webbed fingers. I, I'm, Both. She couldn't see his feet. Oh, yes. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I like Charlie comes across as somewhat a less intense Lara Croft. I think I may have even said that before, but uh, or uh, what's the the woman from the uh, the the 10th Doctor special uh, where they took oh, the bus uh, to the other planet? The lady, uh, lady. Uh, oh, now she I'm was, blanking on her name. Yeah, she was totally. All, a, yeah, she just, was totally a Lara Croft. Uh, yeah, take they off. just gave yeah. her a big finish series. Big finish series. I have no interest in because I didn't <laughs> like that character. Yeah. <laughs> to me, to me, Charlie comes across as a more polished, more sophisticated ace. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, that actually is real a really good uh, example. In fact, I almost picture her not as ace, but but is she has a similar look to ace, and that must be why because yeah, she does come yeah. across a little bit more polished. Instead of kind of the eighties style jacket, nylon jacket, she's wearing a bomber jacket or something like that. You <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yes, a nice bomber jacket 20th- or something. Early twentieth century and, and less less, less explosions. Yes, uh, one of the things I uh, noted about this is 
the the interesting characters that almost the entire cast of characters start out as monomaniacal and self-centered. And, and so here we mm-hmm. are. So Orsino only cares about his loss himself. He doesn't care about the city, his people, the artwork, anything. He just cares about his own pain. Churchwell only cares about the art. He doesn't care about the people, doesn't care about, you know, the destruction of the city. He just cares about the art. Pietro only cares about his people taking over the city. Estella only cares about revenge. And the cultists only care about being insane or something along those yeah. lines. Uh, and it's very and interesting. Oh, oh, keep yeah. going. And the doctor and Charlie only care about having adventures. Well, yep. well, there's a good point, actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, although everyone does seem to come around in the... Well, some of them co- seem to come around Except the end. The some cultists. of them don't. Yeah, the cultists are... <laughs> they just go on to a new uh, thing. I actually... So I think it when we initially meet them, I think Churchwell gets a bit of a pass, uh, uh-huh. even though he he does care about the art, and that's his primary motivation here. I think it's because he realizes he can't do anything for anybody else. He's mm-hmm. got a very limited role. He's trying to do what he can. He is concerned about future generations and preserving the art for them. So it's not just the art itself he cares about. It's, it's, it is people. Okay. And Pietro when we first meet him, is not all about his people. He's just a gondolier who, you know, seems nice, and it it takes a while for his true motives to emerge. Yeah. So I think that they are both not quite as monomaniacal. I agree that Count Orsino is closed in on himself to to the point of he he's just become totally self-centered and is wallowing in his pain. And Mrs. Lavish is taking some kind of perverse delight in what's <laughs> happening to the city. And, of course, Vincenzo is a typical cardboard cutout cultist that has no yeah. real depth. Yeah, he just yep. chews the scenery everywhere. <laughs> so, um, you know, one of the aspects of this that feel a little more futuristic is this this drug they give Charlie. And it feels like almost like a, a bit of a shortcut by the writer. To we need mm-hmm. Charlie to be forced to go along with this charade, uh, and they give her a the the, the gondoliers give her a drug to, that will make her amenable to impersonating Estella, and, and that uh, even feeds her information right. that yeah. she'll need to impersonate to impersonate Estella. So she's like hearing voices in her head that that prefigure and postfigure various things about Estella. And I, it is a shortcut, but I like it. It's an effective one, and mm-hmm. I like that they don't oh, yeah. spend time telling us what's happening. Right. She's right. once she realizes she's under the effect of the drug, she's like, "Pietro, what did you give to me?" Right. And he, he, they just brush past that, and it allows us, the audience, to figure out, "Oh, it's some kind of advanced technological drug that mm-hmm. both manipulates her suggestibility and feeds her information." Right. Right. And actually gives her some mind control because at one point she says, "I can't." I can't control my legs. My legs yeah. are, I'm walking on up against my will, basically. Right. You know, and so there's some mind control aspect of it as well. So yeah, that, that is a kind of a hint they threw in there. And, and, and that does say something. Cause yeah, you can imagine classic who they would have all kinds of beeps and boops in the background for technology going off. And here it's just kind of like, yeah. oh yeah, we've got this super advanced drug that basically controls you when we want you to. Yeah. And moving on to the next thing, <laughs> you know, like yeah. they yeah. don't spend time on it. I also like how, speaking of the sound design of the show, I mean, we have a cast of seven people, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure some of them are doing 
background voices because that's common in Big Finish. You know, they'll mm-hmm. get some walla walla from the from the people they have, but with just seven voice actors, they make it sound like we're in a doomed city with parties going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah they do. Yeah, yeah, the sound design's really good. You feel the you know when they're on the gondola or in the barge, you get the sense that you know that you're on the water. Uh, the, in the different places they go into the tombs, they are in the, the the. There was a little bit of a. I had a little pro- issue, and I don't know if it's just my, me and my hearing, but uh, sometimes I found it hard to hear, understand the voices that were talking when they were in the the uh, ball. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the background voices were a little too loud, but you know, that's just a minor quibble. Uh, yeah, I like the, the 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 sound design and the 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 construction of the story that way. Well, it's yeah. it's interesting too that I want just to kind of mention on that because this was early in Big Finish's time. Mm-hmm. This was very oh, you know, yes. The, very early. So so they're they're actually doing very good sound design very early on. Um I said had kind of similar problems you did, Dom. Not so much the, the background voices, but sometimes the background music I found, at least again in my hearing, yeah. a little too loud. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. they you know, and that's just again, that's every person here is different. I, I do have a little bit of, of hearing loss, self inflicted stupidity <laughs> as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it does affect again, like with crowd voices and background music and things like that. So, mm. but yes. otherwise, I mean, a lot of the design is, uh, I, I found very good that they did a very good job of the editing, the, the audio quality, everything was just very well done. I had just so the listeners have an additional perspective. I didn't have a problem with any of that. There was only one point where. I had any trouble understanding what was happening, and that was when Orsino shoots someone, and and I can't, I couldn't figure out at first who it was that was shot. Not because the background noise was too loud, but because all we get is an ah, and I don't know these, <laughs> I don't know these voices well enough to tell right. whose ah that was. <laughs> right, right, right. Did you find that in the first half, at least, there was a lot more people standing around? By the way, it was Vincenzo that was shot, the cult leader. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, Did you find that there were a lot of people, a lot of scenes of people standing around talking versus action um, in the first half, at least? There was some of that. Yeah. There is, well, in any story, you're going to have more exposition towards the front. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. the, the audience needs to understand what's going on. I thought they kept it moving pretty well. Mm hmm. Because you have, uh, I mean, once uh, we have the opening sequence where Doctor and Charlie are on the run from a firefight, they get into right. the TARDIS, they show up in Venice, they immediately start exploring the city, they run into Miss, Mrs. Lavish, then very quickly they decide to take a boat ride and they meet Pietro, and then we have Doctor Companion separation where the Doctor goes off with the art curator and Charlie stays to talk with Pietro, and by the way, she later on is blaming the doctor for abandoning her, and it's like, you decided to stay behind. Yeah. Right. This is on you. He was heading into the art museum, and you decided to stay with the gondolier. And later, they kind of put a try to patch this and have them kind of, well, I could say the same thing about who abandoned who. It's like, no, no, no. Charlie totally ditched the doctor here. That was a conscious, voluntary decision. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's part of her elitism, you know. Yeah. Well, the, the doctor does, te- you know, it does have a history of like of, of forgetting the companions. I mean, that has happened, but that's not the case here. <laughs> this is clear. Yeah. Uh, well, you definitely get a lot of as as you need in an audio drama of 
oh, look at this dank cell that we're in with the big rocks where you can feel that we're underwater and, you know. Yeah, you know, that's so true. you get those, you get those kind of, you have to have that where you can't just show it. I mean, you would just show that with, you know, this dank cell with water dripping down the walls and on TV, but you can't do that. You have to make sure you say, you know, don't point that nine millimeter gun at me. You know, <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. There is a a, a nice uh, bit of dialogue I have to say where when the doctor talks his way into the Duke's private art collection with Churchwell admitting that oh i don't name drop and bluff my way in like i used to do and then does that well, he, he kind of <laughs> yeah. regrets it i can't do it the way i used to yeah <laughs> except <laughs> that, except he does exactly that and he flatters the curator and does the whole thing where he does talk his way in so i thought that was actually kind of fun that was a good one yeah i also i liked the dialogue in this of in the main i thought it was nicely written well-written dialogue i also really liked the acting by the doctor and charlie especially mm-hmm. for this being their first time in these roles or yep. the first time in in an audio play as the doctor for uh, yep. Paul McGann. I thought it was really well acted by them. Yes. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. Again, makes me wish we had the more Eighth Doctor video stories because I really enjoyed uh, the Paul McGann as the Eighth Doctor. I, I really think mm-hmm. that's a, he's, an, he's got an interesting doctor. One of the things I didn't like about this is the treatment of religion. Uh, I was now the, getting to the that, cultists. Yeah. The cultists are typical evil cultists. At least they're not of any recognizable religion. They just worship Estella. Yes. Mm-hmm. And okay, so that's fine. And th- they don't really add much to the story. Right. I mean, they're just kind of there. They're very one dimensional. But the doctor makes additional comments about religion mm-hmm. that are I th- that are too dismissive. Mm-hmm. He at various points now he says things like it's true I've never been very religious myself it's like okay fine that's that's a fair summary of the doctor's character he hasn't ever been very religious not that we've seen right. but he goes beyond that and while without saying religion is a bad thing he's he I I mean I've seen much worse treatment mm-hmm. of right. religion in television and other stories he it, this doesn't make religious people come off as idiots. Right, but right. he is overly dismissive of of religious concerns and curses, for that matter. Mm-hmm. He does say, yeah, at one point near the end, he says, "The doc- he says there's no such thing as prophecy or fates, just true events, things that happen and things that have to happen." Yeah, and, and that makes no sense. From uh, I mean, he's just contradicted himself right there. If there <laughs> right. are some things that have to happen, okay, that's fated then. Yep. Later yes. on, you're going to call those fixed points in time. Yeah, exactly. Right. So there, and and prophecy. You're a time traveler, dude. You know, <laughs> right? It, it's it, it doesn't matter whether you get the information b- from God, who's outside of time and sees all of history all at once, or if you get the information from someone who has a time machine and has been there briefly. One right. way or another, all prophecy is is getting information about the future. Yeah. Right. So, you know, none of that, none of that made any sense. It was, a, it was like early Scooby Doo <laughs> gone badly. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You know, it was, it was interesting that they, they talk about no, there's no such thing as curses. The whole plot of the story concludes with a curse because the city is going to fall because of a curse, quote unquote. Even if it's not, it's a typical, you know, Shakespearean style curse. By Estella through her mind-controlled jewels that in a hundred years exactly the city is going to fall. 
Yeah. Right. This is a curse. She cursed it, it curse. and she has the tech to bring it about. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah it, I think, yeah. They were trying to make this distinction between uh, carrying out a, a, a plan using technology versus uh, mystical or spiritual uh, ways of doing things. But, when you know, in Doctor Who... There's not a f- you've got you- powerful psychic powers on this show. There can yeah. be other kinds of curses. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. That's that's the thing is, yeah. What was it? Clark, uh, Clark's maxim was any sufficiently advanced technology is, in- is indistinguishable from magic. And yeah, that that's <laughs> operating here. Um, one of the things I found interesting was I didn't think the reveal of Mrs. Lavish as Estella was as surprising as it could have been, given that. There was only oh. one female supporting character in the entire uh, story. Other than Charlie, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. The I I didn't find the the so there are sort of two reveals in this. The first one is the gondoliers are not going to die, and they expect to inherit the city. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so I I saw the as soon as they mentioned that Pietro has webbed feet and hands, I said, okay, so his fish people are going to survive, right. So just, I mean, that was just instant. And I saw the Mrs. Lavish is Estella thing coming way in advance. Really, I saw a glimmer of it as soon as we met her, because she's talking about how after the city sinks, she's going to, even though she's also talking about dying in the process, she's talking about how she'll she'll watch the, she'll go to like a, a, a a ballroom and watch the chandeliers grow moldy with undersea stuff and i so mm-hmm. i think okay so she's not just an ordinary human woman i initially assumed she was a fish person yeah right and then as things progress it's like okay no she's estella and whether estella is a fish person or not will have to remain open until the climax but I, I didn't find either one of those reveals surprising. I also wasn't ob- objecting to them. Yeah. It wasn't mm-hmm. like painful waiting for these to be paid off. But I, in terms of the overall shape of the story, so it's like, you know, about two hours long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I found it very engaging for most of the runtime. I mean, there were imperfections, right. but I found it quite engaging for most of the runtime. And then when we hit the climax at about the 15 minutes till we're done point, it started to fall apart for me. Yeah. Because at that point, all the reveals have been done, all the cards are on the table, and neither Orsino... Now, Orsino has never been much of a sympathetic character, although he becomes sympathetic Mm -hmm. at times because of his grief and guilt over what happened with Estella. Mrs. Lavish initially is kind of sympathetic. She's this fatalistic old woman, but still kind of likable. Mm-hmm. But then once her identity as Estella is revealed, she's she's just a a term I don't want to mention right now. <laughs> <laughs> she's Haridan. She, yeah, she's 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 very unsympathetic in the end. She's yes. just like I I I just want everybody in the city to die and you all deserve mm-hmm. it because of how I got treated and and she and it, it, it you just want to shake her and say these are human beings. These are people. Even right. if you're not a human, you are a person and these are other people. You can't just do this to them. She becomes very unsympathetic at the end. And then they, what they're trying to do is a redemption arc. 
with mm-hmm. her and Orsino. And so the doctor has the jewels that are in control of all of this. And the writing is starting to wear thin here because the doctor is saying, well, anybody could just use these to actualize their, you know, bring the Krell back from the dead and, <laughs> and you know, cause problems like in Forbidden Planet. And, <laughs> and well, if that's true, doctor, why don't you put them on and solve the problem? Yeah. So, and that- so, so that's a weakness. But then Orsino demands to have them and it's like, let me have them, Doctor, and, 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 and well, what are you going to do with them? Just trust me. Just trust me. Just trust me. You have no choice but to trust me. Just tell them you're going to fix it. <laughs> and, and so Orsino gets them to fix it, and then he, but it's going to cost his life. Okay, fine. And then he talks Estella, who finally decides she does love him after all, into getting in the flame with him for no apparent reason. And so we have this paint-by-numbers ending where the two end up dying and redeeming themselves. And it's not paid off well. They could have fixed it with a couple of lines of dialogue mm-hmm. because we need a reason for Estella to die if if they're going to do this tragic lovers thing. And what they should have done is have Orsino start the process of fixing it and then have him realize he can't do it alone. And he needs to say, like, I can't do it without you, Estella. Join me so we can save these people. And then she would have a good motivation to get in the flame with him, and you can have your redemption your redemption uh, finale. They also should have boxed it in so, like, only he and she can do this so, like, other people couldn't. But they mm-hmm. did they—I thought at one point they said that uh, in order to—the re- reverse, they had to have—so the extension of Orsino and, and Stella's life— was the, at the cost of the price of Venice's future, you know, Venice surviving. In order to reverse the, that, to undo the curse, they had to pay back all of the extended life they had, both of them. And I so I didn't get that. I got that one of them's going to have to die to pay mm-hmm. back the extended life, but I didn't get that they both uh, did. Uh, okay. In, I, in any event, yeah, it's a dialogue it, fix, but my criticism right. is they needed to do better dialogue. Well, it, that, it, it definitely true. felt it definitely felt like you said, Jimmy, where they built up and built up and built up over an hour and 45 minutes. And all of a sudden, oh, we've got it's not even an hour and 45 hour 35 minutes because it was like a hour 50 runtime. Oh, we've got a whole 15 minutes left. What do we do now? <laughs> right. They, and they, they had <laughs> and, and they, they ran into the again, you know, we've complained about this before, but the, you know, the, the murder mystery where they don't give you all the facts. Because right. the only thing we know about the jewels is that the doctor found them in the sarcophagus. Oh, these are interesting and pockets them. And they don't show up again until the very end. Oh, you need these, well, these super techno- technological jewels? Yeah, they right. even hang a lantern on how stupid it is that she left them laying around. It's like, no, duh. Yeah. <laughs> if these, are her, these are her secret techno whiz iPad jewels that she's using to destroy the city. She shouldn't exactly. leave them around. Right. You know, and, and again, that's another thing that could be fixed with dialogue. The doctor, as he picks them up, and looks at them, these aren't from Earth, and they're not what they seem to be. Right. Put right. a hint there that there's something more here than just these are beautiful jewels that, you know, she might have been wearing on her wedding night. Right, 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 right. Yeah, that's true. So uh, my last criticism is that the fish people largely get cheated here. Yes. Because <laughs> we had this perfectly normal, okay, the city's going to fall into the sea, and then the fish people are going to... Have inherit it. And, yeah. and, right. and okay, and they've been treated 
as an underclass for a long time, apparently, and this will be their time in the sun, so to speak, or their mm-hmm. time in the bay, to use a fish person <laughs> analogy. And and so they've created, even though they've tried to knock, they've tried to make, they have actually have tried to make the fish people not fully sympathetic by having them attack when they don't need to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But still, you know, the audience's sympathies these days are going to be with the underclass that's been mistreated for a long time. And I want to see the fish people get some satisfaction. And by the end of the story, it's not falling into the sea. They're not going to inherit the city. And all that we get is a single line of dialogue where the doctor says, I'll try to put in a nice word for them while I'm here. (laughs) And it's like, uh, that doesn't, that doesn't, correspond to my desire to see the fish people no longer be a put-upon underclass. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. And and all that practice of under the sea from the Little Mermaid just went to waste. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, great. Now I have that going through my head. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) So, and then we have this moral at the end that Charlie and the doctor talk about. Charlie actually offers, like, a moral of the story, which is kind of funny. Uh, You know, that it, or was it the doctor? Like, you can't live life through objects. And Charlie says, uh, isn't the TARDIS full of stuff? Which I thought was actually kind of funny. Like, you, you've collected yeah. all kinds of stuff. and Well, and if you think back to the TV movie, we got to see what the interior of the yeah. TARDIS is like. And it is this kind of... Cluttered. Gothic is not the right <laughs> word, but like this posh Edwardian... Steampunk. Steampunk, yeah. Yeah. you know, thing with all kinds of knickknacks that the seventh doctor had collected before he regenerated. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and he says, no, no, I don't mean my own bric-a-brac. I mean, religion and misplaced faith, which is where the, another, another of those, his yep. religion references come in, which was kind of odd, but, uh, yeah, that, cause it wasn't really, it wasn't really religion. It was, no, it was, these people had misplaced faith. Sure. But that's not an indictment on religion in general. Yeah. No. Yeah. So that was, a and bit cults odd. definitely aren't either. So, yeah, yeah, I I don't even like the word cult because it mm-hmm. essentially means religious group I don't like. Yeah, so right. I never use the word cult in my apologetics work because it's just an insult term. Well, but for yeah. a story like this, it's like okay, they are cardboard villains, so okay, they can be a cult, <laughs> right? Well, right. And, and, and cult also cult also has a religious meaning in the Catholic Church. You know, which, we talk about the cultus of a saint, which means the following of a saint. Right, yeah. but nobody in pop American culture knows that meaning. In, in pop American culture, I mean, among scholars, I'd be happy to talk about you know cultists in that sense. But among ordinary folks, it's just exactly. an insult word. Yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Any last thoughts, Father Corey? Uh, you know, I will say that Mark Gaddis actually can act. At least, has <laughs> changed his voice. He didn't yeah. actually sound like Mark Gaddis. Yes, I was kind of surprised it was him. Yeah. So yeah. I'm not the biggest Mark Gaddis fan, yeah. so I like him as uh, in Sherlock as uh, as um, the brother Mycroft. Mycroft, yeah, yeah. Uh, I do really like him in that. He wasn't as good in Doctor Who uh, roles, but as Mycroft, he's really good. Uh, but I, I get what you're saying. In this one, you could not even tell unless you knew this was Mark Gaddis. Jimmy, I just wanted to say that despite the, f- I don't want to give a misimpression of this because I kind yeah. of saved my criticisms for last. And I enjoyed this overall. I think the last 15 minutes are weak or weaker mm-hmm. than they should be, but I see what they're trying to do. And it's still, overall, it's an enjoyable adventure. So I wouldn't put anybody off from listening to this. 
there there are other big finishes that I've heard that I have not enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Some I love, like Live 32, I think is awesome. That was good. Yeah. But some I are not my cup of tea. This one is in the middle. This one is enjoyable. Yeah. I'd be if I if I'm listening my way through the eighth doctor, I would definitely listen to this. I wouldn't consciously avoid it because overall it's a nice story. It's a kind of atmospheric piece. And okay, the ending is a little bit weaker than it could be, but it's not bad at all. Yeah. I think so okay. far I've liked the the eighth doctor stories we've heard, and I'm I'm looking forward mm-hmm. to, to, to more of them. I think so far. We've heard what four of them now, including the uh, the, uh, the Christmas chimes one. at midnight. Chimes at midnight, mm-hmm. and uh, they've they've for me they've all been they've all been good. Not not necessarily great, but I've enjoyed all of them. So they, yeah. yeah. Although oh. chimes at midnight was great. Yes. Oh yes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. All right. So yeah, I agree uh, with both of you on that. It's, yeah. It's, they're they're very much. I mean, they really passed time. You know, I looked at it, it was two hours for this one, and it's like hmm. Yeah, next thing I know, two hours was done. It's like, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it moves. It, it went quick, yeah. All right, we want to take a moment before we wrap up to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Jeff V, Lindsay S, Alfredo B, Edward G, and Ian J. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. Now is a great time to become a StarQuest patron because a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter means that when you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com slash give, the first three months are matched by an equal amount from our donor to support all our shows, including this one, makes your gift go even further. And we are very, very, very close to our goal of $2,000 in new monthly pledges. And that's an important goal because it's going to help us to do some new things, including a couple new shows that are coming. So won't you help us close the gap? If you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now's the time. Visit sqpn.com slash give today. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. Uh, what do you think of The Stones of Venice, this Eighth Doctor story? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page or via email to Who at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the 11th Doctor story, The God Complex. <laughs> Until then, <Yeah. laughs> I was just waiting for it. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. I'll get you for this, Dom. <laughs> <laughs> and Father Corey Stiga, thank you as well. Uh, thank you, Dom, although I'm not looking forward to next week either. <laughs> and once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. I'm looking forward to the Krampus. <laughs> thank you for listening <laughs> to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, thank you, Doctor. You've brought me somewhere horrible where everyone wants to die. Right. This is going to be fun.